Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and... I can't believe it, face-to-face with a man who could be argued psychological nemesis, Andy Kindler. There you go. So what I like to do, as you all know, by the way, thank you so much for all the letters and all the correspondence. It means a lot. I'm here live in Montreal, and as I shared with Andy, normally how these things start is I start with a cold open where a guest sort of sits there dumbfounded as I look at them and I think of something that I want to say about the person or how it relates to something in life or the business. And as I look at Andy, I think to myself, God, I wish he'd put down that fucking phone for one minute. It's unbelievable. His wife is texting him. She's having a baby soon. What? She's having a baby in the hotel? Yes. And so as I look at Andy, I think to myself, okay. Andy represents everything that I never understood about comedy until most recently. Because when I started, I always thought that the kind of comedy that was meant for me to work with and try to drive forward into this country and the world was the kind of comedy that was huggable and lovable comedy. And so every time I'd see Andy... He was a guy who was always so nice and always so friendly to me. But on a state of the industry addresses in Montreal, which are a staple of this festival, and he's probably been doing it for over 20 years, and each one of them could be an hour special of their own. They're just 
so incredible and sold out and people come from all walks of the industry to see him do it. And I swear to you, and I'm not exaggerating for those of you who don't know the festival, there are a lot of shows here that sell out, but there are a lot of them that don't always do well. And Andy Kindler's show, The State of the Industry, I swear to you, every single seat is taken. It's like going to see Dave Chappelle perform at Radio City Musical. You can't find a place to stand. And I have never once in my life, and all of the ones I've attended, ever seen Andy Kindler do poorly on one of these things. And he always is obsessing a week, a day before, an hour before. Am I writing enough? Do I got it down? Always doubting himself, like, is it going to be okay? Are you sure I'm prepared enough? And every time he kills. And many, many times I've been the beneficiary of a lot of the skewing humor that he delivers, which I actually love. I've always been a fan of people who roast me and take those shots because I think, as Bill Cosby once said, if they're not saying anything bad about you, you're doing something wrong. Unfortunately for Bill, if they are saying something bad about you, you've done something wrong. But Andy, it was always the kind of comedy that was part alternative, part mainstream, and he had this presence about him that I never really understood. And I could feel in my mind, I thought that he could be a really, really extraordinary actor. In which if you see him in some of the episodes of the Marin show, you'll see that he's wonderful. And I thought to myself, this probably is his calling as an actor. And then I thought to myself, my God, he's such an amazing writer. Maybe he'll write stuff for himself and he'll be performing, whatever. But the point being is that I always rallied around artists who are more huggable and lovable, ones that I felt people would take more of a shine to. And Andy was always that kind of act that I never really understood what was happening or how it was happening. But the industry loved him. The other comics loved him. Even the comics that were huggable and lovable loved him. And the thing I realized as I come here in these this past few years is that, and as I've gotten to know Andy a little bit better, and I got to spend some time with him in Montreal, and this is a lesson for all of us, is the fact that there's going to be a lot of people in your life that don't understand you. There's going to be a lot of people in your life that don't get what you do. And the whole philosophy that people need to understand is that if 1% of the people love you, you're going to be a fucking millionaire. You're going to be successful. You're going to do whatever it takes. And Andy Kindler, believe me, has more than 1% of the people in the industry that rally around him and love him. But the point being is that I think the whole nature of how it is up here, which you see when you evaluate things and you really go around and meet people, and as I sit across from Andy, is that you know, it's the expression of individuality, of your personality, and not being afraid to go out there and do the kind of comedy or the kind of art form that moves you, that makes you feel good, that you feel people are going to want to watch. And if there's somebody like myself who is watching and doesn't necessarily understand, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all, and it's nothing to take anything serious or anything about that, because in the end, if you work as hard as Andy Kindler does and you present the kind of comedy that he does, eventually what happens is you become almost legendary. And in my mind, as I sit across from Andy Kindler, he's somebody to me who's 
so well respected and so powerful an artist. And when I've seen his appearances on Letterman, just some of the most wonderful shows you'll ever see. If you don't know, if you haven't seen them, Google them. And so I guess the lesson for me today as I'm talking with Andy or I'm sitting across uh, talking at Andy is the fact that I know it sounds like a common thing, but just be true to yourself. Be true to your vision, what you're doing. Don't worry about anybody, your company saying, oh, well, he's doing that. Nobody does that. He's way out there. Just do what you do, and you'll get noticed if you really do the right thing and you really put together the kind of undeniable comedy that Andy Kindler puts together. And this guy in the state in the industry addresses. I am not kidding you. If they're recorded somewhere, there's 20 different hours of material. Carlin did 14 hours specials. Okay? Andy Kindler, if he filmed these specials, which I think they did, I mean, he's got more material than any person I've ever seen in my life in terms of generating stuff that's been performed and people laughing at and applauding and give him a standing ovation at the end. So stay true to what you're doing. Don't give in to the man or anybody telling you it's not right or any group of people that it's not right for them. Stick with what you're doing. You will find your audience. You will find the people that believe in you, and you will get where you want to go. might not be quick, but you will get there and stay there. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited. I have Andy Kindler here live from Montreal, and it's my duty to give him the proper introduction, and hopefully he won't slip into a diabetic coma while I'm doing this. Andy Kindler is an actor, comedian, and writer born in New York, Sydney. Kindler has been writing and performing for nearly three decades. In 1992, he appeared on the 15th annual Young Comedian Special alongside Dana Carvey, Judd Apatow, Bill Bellamy, Nick DiPaolo, and Ray Romano. Hacks. He would later go on <laughs> to be on Romano's show... Everybody Loves Raymond as Ray's fellow sports writer. In 1994, he performed his first of four appearances on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and also became a regular fixture on Late Show and Late Night with David Letterman and a frequent contributor to The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Kindler was cast as a judge on the seventh season of Last Comic Standing and has been on several episodes of The Wizards of Waverly Place. He's also an accomplished voiceover actor, voicing characters on several episodes of Dr. Katz and home movies, and he's currently the voice of Mort the Mortician, a regular character on the Fox animated show Bob's Burgers. He regularly appears as a fictionalized version of himself 
on the IFC series Marin and is well known in the comedy world for delivering his annual State of the Industry address at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. I'm very excited to have him here. The man, the legend, Andy Kindler. Thank you. I just want to say that uh, <laughs> I would say that that intro of all the intros I've ever had in my life was the lengthiest. <laughs> I cut down so much. Well, I, the thing is, I was on the Daily. I was I was TV guy in the Daily Show. It was TV guy. I'm, I'm waiting for the recognition to sink in. <laughs> uh, and uh, I reviewed TV shows. For, I think I did seven or eight of them, and then they, they fired me. Well, they didn't fire me. They don't fire me. They just stop. Well, you stop doing something. That's not being fired, right? All right, so let's analyze this for a second. When you stop being friendly with somebody who's a friend of yours and you know not a friend with them anymore, what does that mean? No, no there wasn't. The, the, they didn't say they wanted to stop being friends with me. They wanted to stop the, the segment TV guy. Got it. What do yeah. you think that means? Well, I think, don't, don't I have to be an actual full-time employee to get fired? <laughs> They didn't pick up my option, something like that. <laughs> Do you think you did a good job? I think I did a fantastic job. God. But I think the problem was, uh, I uh, the problem was that they at the time uh, had these uh, ideas of what a, a day. Well, first of all, I was in L.A. John Stewart was in New York, and uh, I don't know how, how much he got involved in the. You know, he, I, I I spoke to him on conference calls, but the whole point of the thing was I'm supposed to review TV shows. With my inimitable style, and uh, so uh, I, I kept writing these, and I did them, and I, they, were, they were fun. But they kept saying, uh, "How how does your review fit into our concept of the show?" And it's like, "What are you talking?" I mean, I don't even understand the question. Like they wanted me to have more of a, th not just a review, but how that review, and I th and I think I have ADHD. I think that you can tell when you watch the Daily Show at certain points. I don't know how it is now because I don't watch it that much. But in the certain points, a lot of the correspondents all seemed like they were, they were told to copy earlier correspondents or something. You know what I mean? Now tell us some shows that you reviewed. Oh, I did uh, Bette Midler's show. Bette Midler's show. It wins a, uh, whatever you call it, one of those uh, audience awards that CBS gives out. Oh, it's People's <laughs> Choice Awards. And I'll never forget the promo for that show. There's very few promos for shows I remember. I don't know why I remember this one so much, but... It was her daughter running up to her backstage before a concert saying, Mom, oh, I'm so excited to see you. This is my boyfriend, John. And John says, Oh, Miss Midler, it's, it's so exciting to see you. I, 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 I have all of your albums. And then the daughter says, I'll see you back at the seat. I just want to say something to my mom. And Bette Midler leans over and says, Honey, he's gay. Oh, and that's the exact reason why it wasn't just pulled off the air. <laughs> All of the copies. Remember how they taped over to some of the Tonight Shows? They purposely taped over Bet. Well, they said, well, we have plenty of tape. does not matter. I want to tape over what this is. And the joke I did on it was a celebrity... Because she had done something where she's like in a, in, a, in a workout machine and she gets all, maybe it was a, uh, what are those ones called that no one wants to do? The Stairmaster, Stairmaster. or the other thing? The, uh, the, the one treadmill. that goes straight. Treadmill. Yeah, the straight. The one that goes straight but you're not going anywhere. She, I think, fell off of that and my line was celebrity plus contraption equals hilarity. <laughs> so... I did those, and uh, I felt good. But then they just, it was just one of those things, like, I don't know what happened. But 
They said, well, Andy, you live in New York. You live in L.A., and we're doing the show in New York. That was, I think, their final reason. <laughs> oh, I said, oh, there's no way we can get footage across to New York from here. When, <laughs> when's the last time you did something good? That... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have, I have two phones. I don't know if you can tell. I have two phones balanced <laughs> on my lap. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be good for the radiation for your yeah, having a child. Yeah, for exactly what the radiation. A lot of people are worried about the radiation. <laughs> I know that there's no way to hurt my crotch area. See, I can't even do blue material. I say crotch area because I don't want to say anything more blue. What's the dirtiest joke you've ever told in your life? I just stage? wrote the dirtiest joke I've ever told. I just told it three days ago. Can you share it with us? It's the dirtiest joke I've ever written. Okay. And the dirtiest joke I've ever told. And it is that uh, I said, uh, I thought a fantasy baseball league, I thought fantasy baseball was that weird dream I have about getting fucked by Barry Bonds. <laughs> that's your, uh, that's your, uh, that's, that's the dirtiest, dirtiest thing I've ever, well, well, but on the Young Comedian special in 1992, I did a joke because, you know, I have at times, been critical of gratuitous language, you know, like uh, like Seinfeld used to be until the PC. Pol uh, that's a different thing. Uh, but I, I would like, you know, just the fact that you could get a laugh just by saying the word fuck like butter, you know, just to me, it was like that was on my only point. I don't care what you say. And of course, there's some comics who are so blue and hilarious. So you can, there's no rules about it. But in 1992, I did a character called Rusty Fleming on my Young Comedian special, and it was based on my friend Rick Kearns, who is a comedian, who's a good friend of mine. He lives in Denver, hilarious guy. And it was me doing him older. And it was the first time I had, and last time I've ever used this word that I'll tell you that is in the joke, ever in my act. And this is so, the, the whole bit was like, yeah, I go to the club, and I uh, asked the uh, club owner for an advance, and they say, how much? I said, I don't know. How much does an eight ball go for in this town? <laughs> they canceled the fucking week on me. <laughs> it was like a series of those. Like a, I had a bacon and bean burrito, two or three more. I, I had to get my stomach pumped 10 minutes late with the show. They canceled the fucking week on me. <laughs> so, so it ends up with me going, so then I got my, my Tonight Show spot. I kept saying, don't say pussy, say vagina. Don't say pussy, say I get on the show, I say cunt. I'm off network five years. <laughs> you say cunt on cable, you're a big star. So I you agonized the about- the C word. I, and I agonized over it because I, I didn't, uh, I wouldn't normally use the word, that word. Get a lot of backlash for the word? None, none. Because I think I, I, it was, well, I'm sure, I love the way I, how do I know what the back, you know, it was like 1992, we didn't, we had ro rotary phones back then, how could you get backlash? Someone have to write a letter <laughs> to the newspaper, <laughs> six weeks later, send it would a, be a movement against you. telegraph. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there were people who got upset about it, but uh, I've had more, I got more blowback from people about my holocaust my holocaust material from that uh special the whole thing about you know when you grow up jewish you don't want to go on a train you know oh yeah baltimore baltimore stuttgarten <laughs> cleveland vetus broughton <laughs> and then i say all oh, my uh german i know is from hogan's heroes <laughs> so the whole thing was like you know jews are only things we don't want to get rounded up again and then this jewish writer who i forget his name but he passed away 
we got in this back and forth argument on the phone. Remember the phones when you'd use them to talk, kids? <laughs> you could talk uh, talk into them. And then the, if the person was on the other end, they would respond. And you had relationships. <laughs> and this guy got very upset with me and because he said what he said was, <laughs> and the reason why the story is instructive is because what he said was that I was um, like trivializing the Holocaust. And uh, were you? And so, but uh, well, here's what I'm what I ended up saying. Well, first of all, the guy was said to me. He started to rewrite the joke to make it less trivializing what he thought because he was a comedy writer. So he goes, "I have." He left a message on my machine, Addy. I have an idea for the joke. It's just a house number. No, I'd never heard that. Have you ever heard that before? No. All right. That's a TV writing expression for not the exact joke, but here's the vein it would go into. Uh-huh. And I'd never heard that. It's like, it's like uh, you have, are you laying enough pipe in that scene? You, is there a blow? That kind of thing. So I thought about it, and I believe that I was doing it because it really – I. Be- I was doing it because it, the jokes came from my own fear. So I felt like they were not gratuitous jokes. But what it did, what that interaction did teach me was that comics, sh- this whole idea that you shouldn't uh, like think about what you're saying and comics should never apologize. And I think that's nonsense. It's like it, you can go too far as a comic. You can insult people. If you stop yourself from experimenting and things like that, then you won't ever you know, make any mistake. If you don't want to make a mistake... Uh, then you won't take chances. So you have to take chances, and you're going to say things that are maybe wrong, and maybe you'll never say anything wrong. But the idea that you can go back and say, well, maybe I was too far on this. And so that it did, it did make me think about whether something was getting a laugh because it was gratuitous or whether it was getting a laugh for the right reasons. Tell me a comedian that you love that goes so far beyond the line. But he's so smart that you just love the comedy. Well, I don't even know if it's beyond the line, but I mean, I lo- I like a, like a tell. It doesn't matter what he says to me. Wonderful! I just you know? I just interviewed him in New York. He was amazing. Yeah, and so it's like you know, I don't have angry bits about midgets, <laughs> or yeah, I don't even use the word midget, <laughs> and I don't even know if he's saying those jokes to point in his mind whether he's pointing out the ludicrous nature of being prejudiced or whatever or whether he really has a problem with little people i don't care because he's hilarious he's actually developing a show with brad williams so he's (laughs) not uh yeah so it's like but just the fact that he would that you'd isolate this group and get so angry at them is hilarious to me and i think another person who does it very well too is dana gould because you know Fantastic. The, this this whole uh, argument that's going on right now about, uh, and what I'll be talking about tomorrow in the speech about PC, and you know, it's like uh, you know, and I don't have to get into the meat of all that, but the point is that uh, yes, there are, there are examples where PC goes too far, but then on the other hand, you know, someone like Bill Maher uses the uh, idea like I say anything that comes to my mind. To say the most horrible things in the world, you know. Do you know why he says everything that comes to his mind and anything that comes to his mind? Because he thinks that his, my theory is because he thinks that his job is to be provocative, and he doesn't care what the subject matter is. No, he's on a non-commercial network that doesn't have to bow down to Coca-Cola and Charmin 
and General Foods. There's no sponsors. Yeah, but that, but so he can say whatever he wants. He can't say whatever. Hurt him. I got what you're saying, but but I'm saying that it shouldn't matter that he can't get hurt. What should matter to him is what I'm saying is beyond the fact that it's a non-commercial outlet. He's bashing Muslims. He's engaging in hate speech. And he's hiding behind the fact that he's a comedian. Say it. That's my argument. Your argument is that he's hiding. So he's a guy who's been doing comedy. And please note that I am not friendly with Bill Maher. Nobody is. I don't. You know, no one out, could be. I don't hang out with Bill Maher. Who would? But the point I'm trying to make is that a guy who's been in the profession for 35 years, why does he have to hide behind being a comedian? I'm not saying hide. You I'm said saying hide. he's. Well. If you are going to nail me with my language, you could, okay. you could, you could nail sorry. me every five minutes. I don't even know what I'm saying half the time. So uh, it's I only because apologize. it's only because I'm inarticulate. Uh, <laughs> but the point I'm making is he's not hiding behind anything. He's he's a multi-trillionaire. There's no he's. But what I'm saying is his operating philosophy is I will say whatever it is that's provocative. The more people who hate it, the better it is for my business, and it's not coming from his heart. It may be coming from his heart, but his heart has become poisoned by hate and ignorance. And it used to be, I mean, I used to watch that show early on HBO. I thought it was like one of the few places on that any place that they had a real discussion about stuff. But the thing is, he's, he's, become, uh, he's become something. I don't know why he became this way, but uh, and it's also part of my crusade. That's a bad word to use. <laughs> but I'm anti I was raised that anti Bill Maher. I'm anti Bill. No, I was raised that you respect people. You don't judge people based on what uh, religion they belong to. You don't say, "Oh, you're a Muslim. I have to therefore hate you because the Quran is poisoned and Islam is a evil religion." And that's what he's doing. Even though he claims that he, I'm not saying all Muslims, he basically does say all Muslims. But if Bill Maher were on his show and verbalize the Gilbert Gottfried tweet about Aflac. Yeah. He'd still be on the air. Gilbert Gottfried does it and involves a sponsor. Goodbye. See well, you no, later. I don't I, I uh I don't even think we're arguing about this. I seed the point. You know, it's like Gilbert I love Gilbert Gottfried. I understood where the Aflac people were coming from at the time. Although I think in the in the long run they would have been done better to stick with him. And because I because Gilbert, you don't think they could replace his voice as a duck? You think they it's a haven't hard, been able to? They can't replace a duck. No, they haven't. Who do they use now? The, uh, it's, it's, it's a, I think the campaign. But first of all, I don't want to go to the wall defending the Affleck duck commercial, <laughs> or I don't want to be. I don't want the quote, the poll quote to be Kindler says the Affleck commercials complete <laughs> failure. <laughs> Uh, since they got no, but there's something about Gilbert Gottfried is hilarious. He goes Affleck. Here's the thing about Gilbert Gottfried, he is going to make you cringe at one point. But Gilbert Gottfried is four thousand times funnier than Bill Maher. The jury is in on Bill Maher. He is not a good stand-up comic. At forty years of saying I kid the president, and laughing at your own jokes. Do you see him? Who do you are? Are you gonna when you are? are I'm not saying you should ever die, but if you're on your deathbed, <laughs> are you gonna want? Are you gonna be listening to Bill Maher live at the Capitol Theater, doing his Rush Limbaugh material, or are you gonna be listening to Richard Pryor's 
concert film. Is anybody well, in this room? Are you all like, <laughs> what are you, some kind of, uh, is everyone here under his, uh, is this like a Scientology cult? <laughs> Nobody's backing me up on this Bill it's, Maher it's thing? There's like five people in the room and they're literally like an oil painting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. I've never seen a, a, a crew that could, couldn't care less <laughs> about what I'm saying. This Maybe t- if we shoot in the fucking elevator, we'll get the crew to be excited. Well, I mean, it's, look, you got your track. You got the. You got. Is this the uh, the Spike Lee track thing? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> got a track. Uh, nothing got a track. more enjoyable than watching those Spike Lee film specials, where you, all you can see is the camera going back and forth. Spike, we get it. You can direct well. Not everything. Not every joke is a tracking shot. Not every you don't have to do the Hitchcock move on every punchline. <laughs> yeah. They're going in. He's going out. He's going in. What was it? I I, I like I love that. Well, the comedians. What was it? The Kings of Comedy. That was a good. The Kings of Comedy. Is that what it was? I love that. I'd never seen uh, the guy who was hilarious who passed away. Bernie Mac. Yeah, he was hilarious. I'm afraid of you, motherfuckers. I don't even know. I don't even know. I swear to God, I couldn't figure out half the words he was saying in that special, <laughs> and I was laughing hilariously. Uh, I don't know. Can you laugh hilariously? I just, I just picture you in your living room, the whitest guy on earth, watching the Kings of Comedy. Yeah. Oh, you don't think I'm down? You don't think I'm down with it? What are you doing? I'm doing the track. Doing the track. This was part of watching that special. This is funny. You know, people get very upset when I laugh over and over again like this, and I try to control myself, and I can't do it. And now you're telling you're me. You're not a fake laugher, though. You're I'm, laughing I'm with never for, a fake laugher in right. my life. Um, That's the problem with us. I never fake laughed, but I do laugh at you now. Well, here's the thing, and I think the, uh, what are you playing with back there? <laughs> what do you, did they give you a fake uh, a piece of equipment to make you feel good? What is that? That's a uh, iPhone on a on a jib. Is that what that's acting as? Yes. The technology is way advanced over the programming at this point with everything they have. They They're actually, they actually have a rotary version of that. <laughs> I think rotary is a funny word. But here's the thing: I'm I realize that, and it's sad to to me to realize. You know what the thing is? Everybody in the world, I've decided is not everybody, but people have a tendency to be upset from their point of view. So, for example, if you're um, a Muslim living in, in in a country, and of course, it's uh, unbelievable. When I always preface what I say about Charlie Hebdo, I always have to preface it by saying, I agree people should not be killed for cartoons. Because whenever I say anything about the cartoons, they go, oh, you're saying they should be killed? No, no. I assure you, people, I am against killing people in general, and more specifically, no cartoonist should be killed. But the idea that people like Bill Maher say that these Muslims have to love it. They have to love... I've seen these cartoons, some of these cartoons, and I'm telling you, when you draw Muhammad with a hook nose... You draw. It's the same thing as drawing a Jew. You're drawing a. It could have been a Jew in the 30s, and you can't tell me that every example of of Muhammad with his balls hanging down by the ground, uh, the ground. What is the point of those cartoons, except to sometimes just stick it in the face of these people who are already 
disliked in these various countries. So if you're a Muslim and you're and you're polled and they say, what do you think about these cartoons? And you say, I hate them. Bill Maher takes that and says, look, they hate the cartoons. They're all terrorists, you know. But if so, it's like if you're a comedian and you're a cartoonist, you don't want to be shot for your cartoons. That's the point of view you're coming from. But I notice a lot of these same people who are talking about free expression. I didn't see them fighting for mosques near 9-11. That was, I was fighting for that. People were saying they shouldn't have mosques near 9-11. So I'm, I'm saying I'm good, Barry. Everyone else is bad. And I'm saying, not so much that, but I'm saying that it, it very much upsets me that we've gotten into this thing where uh, people don't realize history or that there was an inquisition. Yeah. Uh, that we deposed the the, the the free elected leader in Iran in, ni- in, the, in 1950, whatever. And so everyone comes from their own point of view about what they think their rights are. And I think it's people should look from everybody's point of view. When's the last time... That- I had a drink. <laughs> <laughs> What's the longest period of time you've ever gone without being angry about something in the world? Well, this is a, this is a, a more important point that he's making because often my wife will say to me Andy stop hating everything (laughs) so we'll be watching TV and uh, this is my problem there's no question about it it's like when I was a kid my dad was very brilliant and he was hilarious. My dad passed away. And I'm glad you're going to this way because I really did want you to go way back. And you did a segue to which was perfect because I did yes. want you to go way back to where you grew up, what your family was like, and how you decided to get into the entertainment business. What was the inspiration? Well, my dad was hilarious. And my dad was the funniest. Uh, you know, he, he died this year. And uh, I can't stop. Oh, th- I'm, thank you. And I can't stop talking about it now. And, uh, and I, I, I feel uh, for the first time like Bob Saget. Because he always makes inappropriate, he, like he like he's had so much tragedy in his life, you know, and he lost his sister, and but he's like very, very like purposely makes jokes of it, and I I I never d- didn't I never disliked that. I always laughed at it, but I was like, would I be that way? And so there is part of me that's like, uh, like I wouldn't put it on when my dad uh, died. You know, I I've been doing this whole bit about how I'm sorry I didn't make it into a Facebook event. You know, everybody's like, uh, turn on Facebook. Good morning, I have gangrene. You know, <laughs> oh. They're removing the rest of the foot today. You know, here's another picture of a relative that you couldn't possibly know who's died earlier today. It's been 13 years since my gout <laughs> changed my life. And uh, now, did you know your dad was going to die? Uh, well, he was 88 and uh, no, it was a shock that it happened that day. But I knew that he was winding down towards that. You know, I just lost my mom. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Every time I went to visit my mom, you know, th- there's that feeling when you turn and just look in and wave that one time and you turn and walk out. Yeah. You think to yourself as you're walking down the hallway, is that the last time? Right. If you don't mind, well, could you talk about the last time you saw your yeah, dad? Yeah, well, and there's a couple of things about it. You know, my uh, my dad... As I said, when I was a kid, he was the funniest. He was like a hero to me. He was so funny. And he could be funny. I'll tell you how funny he could be. Funny in the moment. Like, uh, uh, And this is just an example of the way he was all the time. We got one of these. Uh, this was like a few years ago. We got one of these things from the that came to the house from like a homeopathic healer or whatever. 
and it was like, and use these special supplements. And my dad was very, did not believe in any of the alternative medicine and stuff. And so, and so he says on the thing, he, so he sa- says in the, in the brochure I'm reading, he goes, go, and we will not use any uh, medical jargon to confuse you. And my dad goes, they don't know any medical jargon. <laughs> so that's the type of thing, like in the moment, he was always that way my whole life. So uh, nobody funnier. And so my dad had was perfectly healthy. And when he turned 60 and he'd smoked like a lot of people from his generation, but he'd quit for like 30 years. He stopped when he was 30. He got this like cancer on his tongue and it just turned into a whole 20 long year thing. And then one time he was in the hospital, they gave him too much blood thinner. And he and and when when he, when that happened, it was like a two month ordeal. I saw him very vulnerable and uh Ultimately, that was a really good thing to see, even though it was hard to see in the moment. So I had those moments where I saw him like almost di- dying and all. That. But when he actually did die, I wasn't there. I was in L.A. But over the last year or two, I could tell he was getting tired, just very, very tired. And the and last uh, time you saw him was like at, um, I would say, last last September and he passed away in January and he and it was great but he was just very I could just tell he's just you could tell he's just exhausted you know from life in a way and from all these things that he had but he had such a great life and I always imagined that uh, when he passed away I wouldn't be able to take it because I've been very lucky that's the first family member I've really you know except for grandparents I really lost and I realized that the grieving thing is is uh, is very odd because uh I did cry and things like that, but it's come out in odd ways. And one of the ways it's come out with was just general, talk about anger, was general anger, you know, that would just come out. And I have to realize, oh, I'm angry because of this. You know, it's, ne- it's not a linear thing. Jonathan Katz actually s- sent me a very nice note, and he said, just know that this is a thing that will really, is a big thing that happened, and it'll, it'll take a while, and it'll come and go in different ways. So... You know, getting back to when I was a little kid, my dad was kind of my hero because he was also extremely bright and knew a lot about science. And so he would, we would argue. When I was like 13, I started to get like into hypnotism, you know, all this stuff like uh, the occult. You know, I was obviously just a kid. But he got very concerned about it, like I was going to end up in a cult. And I would argue with him about spirituality our whole lives, basically. And I realize now that one of the reasons why I get. I argue with people why I'm so angry when people because I believe there's a spiritual sides of the universe, but I don't believe it's some it's not something that, that needs to be defined or I'm trying to prove or it's against evolution or anything. But it's the type of thing that you experience when you're a musician or you're a comedian or you or you draw or you meditate or you do martial arts. It's like a oh, something that your mind gets into that involves technique maybe, but it's not thinking. And so that one of the reasons why I get so angry at these people who are new atheists who say there's no spirituality, you prove it to me, is, be, is because I'm still arguing with my dad. So that's, that's where I think the anger comes from feeling that not only do I hate what Bill Maher is saying, but that somehow what he's going to say is going to very much affect my life and death in a way, like I'm still a little kid that way. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Yeah. Got it. So what was the first inspiration for you to go on and try stand-up, and when was it? Well, uh, I always tell this one story about when I was a little kid. that There used to be a sign in New York that said, uh, put a tiger in your tank. I don't know if you're that old. Yeah. Do you remember? It mm -hmm. was like a... It was some kind of gas company. Yeah, and so I was driving by the sign, and I saw the sign, and I said, uh, I was like five or something. I said, what does pewditiger mean? Then the whole family cracked up. I was like, oh. That really was like a light bulb. Oh, this is a, it's a good racket. But I mostly, when I was a kid and uh, through high school and college, I went to college upstate New York. I wanted to be a musician. I never thought about anything else but to be a musician. So I was a violinist at a young age, and I hated that quickly. Switched to guitar and wrote songs. And I was in bands in college and came out to L.A. That's why I came out to L.A. was to be a, a singer-songwriter guitarist. So what happened? Well, I... If I had any advice to give people when they're in their 20s is I wish I could have been less hard on myself. Because it's the same thing now. I'm hard on myself right now. Like you're talking about the speech tomorrow. It's like I my mind can't focus. I'm going to be a – it's like there's a, someone in my head who's constantly on my back. And it's never been a helpful thing. <laughs> it's not a good motivator. But so when I was in – but it's been there my whole life of saying – what are you doing? You're screwing up. You're you're lazy. Get get to work. So when I was a musician in my early twenties, I didn't. I wanted to make a living, so I didn't play original. I didn't play like uh, showcase clubs. I played like in top forty bands, but I was still working on writing songs and stuff like that. But when I look back at that time, I was like, why didn't I go to the showcase clubs? But the truth is, everything in my life is my problems are being hard on myself. Almost 100%, that's what it is. And so I should even be more understanding of where I was. But because I did it that way, I wasn't really going anywhere in terms of, like, quote, the the music business. And the music business was very, by that time already, was very, you know, hard. I think it's still, like, a, a way harder business than comedy because I think comedy is e egalitarian. You know, you really can start tomorrow doing comedy. This is the thing that I'm sure you know. If you're a young comedian, you can just go on at an open mic night at the improv and Chris Rock can walk through the hallway and you can just tap him on the shoulder. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I loved your last special. Listen, can I ask you a question about comedy? Sure, man. What is it? Yeah. In music, you never walk down a hallway and run into Mick Jagger and say, <laughs> hey, Mick, you think I can ask yeah, you yeah, a little something about this? Got a couple of minutes for me? No, you're absolutely right. And 
It really is even today. Like music's a thing where I mean, I think if I'd done music like I did comedy, I would you know who knows what would have happened. But that's like me trying to figure out what would have happened. Whereas I think this is another thing I think is a good lesson or whatever for anybody who's trying to do something. I always took my sense of humor for granted, like because it came easy to me. I didn't think about it so much like, oh, I can make a living from this or I mean, I, I always was, you know, loved Saturday Night Live, loved uh, Letterman, loved all these, but I never thought about it. And then it just happened to be that a friend of mine, uh, I was working at a stereo store in the 80s uh, when they had stereo stores. Uh, and uh, he just said, hey, you know, I was making fun of everybody at a picnic. And he said, well, have you thought about stand up? I said, no, I never did. But the fact that he wanted to do it, it really cushioned the blow, you know. So I, I was in a duo for a couple of years. You were in a comedy team. Yeah, Andy and Bill. And when was your first performance and where was it? And I started it comedy in 1984. I think it might have been either. There was a club in Lomita, California, which you don't know where that is, right? No. Where do you live? I grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, went to Boston University, and then went to New York, and then here. Oh, so that's why you know all those. So you started in Boston. Yes. But you would never have had something called the Boston Comedy Club in New York, right? Yes, I did. I'm a, I'm a backwards psychic. It's fantastic. I go back, and knowing what happened, I predict. People always say the way you run your business is the way you run your personal life. But I know I have to believe that the woman that you met, that you're married is to— Is a saint? It takes a strong woman to oh, keep yes. the train on the tracks. There's no question Tell about that. Tell me where you met her. They say a woman knows within five minutes if she's going to be with a guy or not. What happened? I was at the We met at the improv. The improv used to be a fun, well, it still is, but it was never fun for me because I was trying to be a comic there. But in the 80s and the um, in the late 70s, maybe even, the, 80s, the improv, a lot of people would come there, they would just hang out in the, in the bar area. And it was like... Uh, a, a fun time, which I don't ever think they ever had at the comedy store, really, right? Everybody's on the patio there or whatever. Everyone's on the patio there thinking dark thoughts. <laughs> uh, so What Andy's alluding to, for those of you who aren't from L.A. and aren't in the comedy club scene, I'd say if I could be truthful about the three main comedy clubs in Los Angeles... We might uh, have different opinions. We might have different opinions of it, but the way the feel of the clubs when you walk in, you have the Laugh Factory, which I would say if Jamie Masada, the owner, would want a vibe, he would say, I want it to be the light. I want it to be a place where you walk in and you feel enlightened and it's bright and it's beautiful and it's always constantly being redone. If you go in the improv, you'd say to yourself, hey, I want the light, but I want the darkness. I want to be able to have comedians that have a light, great way about it, but I also want to enjoy the people there. And if you go in the comedy store, you would say, this is the darkness. This is the dark. Yeah, you're entering the darkness. And it was the years of, uh, who's the guy who? Freddie yeah, Prince. Uh, no, yeah, not Freddie Prince. Yeah, Freddie Prince, but also uh, uh, Kennison. Sam there was a, those years were kind of dark from what I've heard from the people yeah. there and uh so you met your wife in a comedy at the club. improv but I will say the here's what my version of what he just said the laugh factory is a place like he said he wants to keep it light but he also wants it to be like a factory <laughs> so he that's the way he manufactures they're going to manufacture laughs there and if you can't produce them like me 
kind of rapid j- jokes per minute, last per minute. You won't get a lot of work at the Laugh Factory. Quick translation, Andy is not a regular at the Laugh Factory. Exactly. In fact, I remember Jamie when he first opened the place. It was like a little tiny place. That had story has no bearing on anything. Uh, but the, uh, the improv, and I never, the whole comedy show, that, the, I, I, I tried out there, but then there was, at some point she goes, yeah, you could park cars or you could be a door. <laughs> and it was like, for some reason, I'll do anything in comedy. Go, I stay in the worst condos, apartments, and everything. But I never wanted to, that was one thing that made no sense to me. Yeah, was the comedy to, store has almost like an internship program where young comedians do work for Mitzi and for the Shore family, and in exchange, they get an insider's edge to get on stage. But in the end, it doesn't make any difference because once you get on stage, you have to deliver, and if you don't deliver, it doesn't matter how many doorman hours you do. <laughs> and I don't know if they still have that. Yes, uh, they do. They, <laughs> And of course, a lot of people like Mark Marin and people they play the store more now. So I don't play it because uh, I'm a recluse. No, so the, I met my wife, and she just happened to hang out at the Improv. When and, was that? Uh, 1991 or 92. We met, and then we got married in 2002. And uh, she met me during a time period where I was just bombing all the time, bomb, bomb, bomb. But Crowds she loved hated you. me. She was scared for me. She was scared for me. But she said the one joke. That she heard when I when she first met me, she not that she found my act confusing, but it's hard when people are not react when people are not react. It was like right when the young comedian special came out, so you'd think I was oh, uh, people were carrying me on my shoulders, but they weren't. I was still developing things, but she really liked me doing my mother, uh, who I a lot of my early act was based on my mother coming to California and getting off of the plane and with the tour guide book and saying, Andy, do you, did you know that San Francisco was the fifth largest textile manufacturer in the <laughs> early 20th century? Andy, can you tell me about the Spanish explorers and the Franciscan monks? Andy, I want to visit Sausalito, <laughs> a small fishing village north of the Golden Gate Bridge and nestled in lovely Marin County. So this one joke I did was almost a litmus test of whether uh, you got my act. And the joke was my mother sitting in the restaurant in Sausalito looking at the menu, and she says, Andy, you live in California. How are the fajitas? <laughs> now, Barry laughed. Of course, the crew's not going to laugh because they're <laughs> dead inside. And uh, I'm only kidding. This is the nicest crew I've ever seen. Half of the people are making out. Why do you lie? You're not a liar. Why lie? Oh, they aren't nice? Yes, they're, they're wonderful. Dark. They're dark. They have some problems. It's, they're like the comedy store from the 70s. They have some problems. The guy doing the tracking, he looks like a little bit like a young uh, Zach Galifianakis when he was thinner. <laughs> Zach lost a lot of weight. Or who you lost a lot of weight? Maybe they both lost weight. I don't know. He looks more like a, a player. This guy's a player. A player? Yeah, definitely. Gets a lot of action? Yeah. Before you met your wife, did you score a lot with a lot of comedy groupies? I told my wife, if it wasn't for her and I didn't settle down, uh, I would be in a clinic, blind (laughs) from syphilis. Come closer. Come closer. (laughs) Who are you? Were you good in the rack? I was, no. I was, uh, luckily, I had no game. But I was a desperate road comic looking for the ladies. It was sad. It was a sad chapter in my life. 
But no, I never, I never really bring him back to the condo. Ugh. Sounds terrible now. When Where I the think opening about act it. is on the couch and the middle act is in some See, den. I think much to my own. I, I would say, giving myself credit, I did at some point. Like I say, I never. I mean, I'm not saying I never slept with anybody, but my batting average, my batting average would indicate I was a shortstop or a utility fielder. What was your best line? Why wouldn't you sleep with me? <laughs> Look at me. I don't let the sweaty forehead fool you. I'm good in the sheets. Look, hi. Are you looking for a guy who's needy? <laughs> Are you? Uh, hey, why not? That was my best line. Hey, why not? We're people. Oh. That was my best line. Jesus. No. I so you're in the comedy. So you're in the comedy team. When do you decide to fire the guy and go out on your own? I didn't fire him because uh, that would be. That well, he said a podcast. Something. Hey, when they don't call you after a certain amount of right, times, does that true. mean you're fired, or does that mean you're? Well, interestingly well, enough, Andy was in the you know L.A. and we're in New York, and so we can't. Yeah, you can't have him. Uh, the, in the, there's an article about me in the New York Times today. I'm not. I am not someone who's self-promotional. That's not my bag. But my comedy partner is mentioned in the article. Can you believe it? It's nice. He's a therapist now. Barry, I notice, asks questions, but very quickly loses interest. <laughs> Is this one of your trademark interviewing skills? I've he lost. asked me the question. He couldn't care less about my stupid partner, Bill. I just said he was in the New York Times, Barry. Well, I'm sorry. Barry, we're going to go back to the old days where I'm rat tat 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 tatting. But you mentioned the New York Times before we started, so I didn't think... Oh, I did? I didn't think you oh, want me to bring it up starting, again. I'm losing my mind again. What's the title of the article? Uh, it's not working out for him? No. Uh, <laughs> it's about me. It's about it's about the giving the speech, actually. I don't know what the title is. Handsome yet funny. Smoking hot good looks. Maybe the article says Andy Kindler. Why not? Yeah, maybe it does. It mentions that it doesn't have, I know articles no longer have to mention that I'm Jewish. <laughs> it's implied. I think this article might mention that you're Muslim. Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me. No, but take me through. So how do you decide you don't want to be a comedy team anymore? And how oh, do you okay. Decide? So what happened, what happened was two things. I would bail on every bit that wasn't going well, mm -hmm. <laughs> much like I do in my regular act if it's not going well. So that's not so good for, for a duo. He's still committed. He's still a Marsh, gay Martian who speaks in consonants. That's not one of our bits. But uh, so, and then I would also do a thing where I would start to go on my own with the crowd and <laughs> do my own crowd work. It just, I think we both, he realized that I was wanting to do something on my own eventually. So now that's what, what are happened. you doing for a living then? I was uh, 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 working at a stereo store. And Still in the stereo store. Uh, that, that when I first started, I was working in the stereo. Then the stereo store closed, and I worked in a video. I worked selling video recorders. Was there a moment doing comedy when you broke off on your own? Yes. What happened where you said, "I'm not working during the day anymore. I'm making a living." Oh as well, a what the biggest breakthrough was becoming a waiter. Believe it or not, I had thought every day job you had to do was terrible. When I became a waiter, it was the greatest job in the world. It's the second best job to stand up for me. I loved it. Why? Loved it. Because you were spritzing with the people. You're social. Uh, everything that makes some people hate the idea of being a waiter, I loved. 
and I and I only worked lunch, and that gave me the freedom to really start pursuing. Like I could conceivably go on a gig and not, you know, for a weekend or whatever, because I could work my schedule out. And that's what happened. And in uh, April of 1987, and uh, talking about my dad again, my dad gave me $300 a month for like six months in 1987 to help me over the transition from, uh, of course, I'm Jew. We're Jews. We all have. We're loaded. And uh, that gave me, but, but in February, uh, a- April of 1987, I went on the road. And that's how I started to make my living from from that time on. I was on the road for five years, 40 weeks a year. Wow. That was during the boom. And talk about your first big break, how you prepared for it, and what happened. First television. Well, the first one was uh, Comedy on the Road with John Biner. Yes, I remember it. Uh, Rick Messina got me the gig. And when he got me the gig, Rick Messina was a booking agent with a guy named Tony Camacho in New York City, and then he became a manager, came to L.A., and is quite famous. Rick Messina managed Tim Allen and Drew Carey and still do. Yeah, and uh, I'll never forget Rick Messina said to me, Andy, I'm going to do you a solid. I never knew what that meant, but it worked. And I remember it was a kind of road John Biner, and uh, then he also had guest celebrity hosts, and it was a guy who pitched for the Oakland Athletics. I can't remember his name. Dave somebody. Dave Stewart. Yes, it was Dave Stewart. <laughs> That's what it was. He's a pitching coach now. Oh, really? But he, so he hosted it, and then uh, I wasn't as nervous. I'll never forget that I flew cross-country, and I cut it close. I was, it was like, I was worried about you. I was like, yeah, why did I cut it so close? So uh, I prepared for that, and it went okay, and I was... Did you know? Or my early bits were like about um, me getting beaten up at a club, and uh, and I did. I was very lucky to be during a time period where there were tons of these shows, but I went through every single horrible experience. Like I, my, I blacked out once. You know, I blacked out. Was spaced out. You blacked out in the middle of a television. And I couldn't trance. remember where it was. Couldn't remember one thing. So how long was the dead air in the spot? It seemed like, and it was a terrible. It was, a, it was, a, it was a one. Sandra Bernhard hosted it. It was at the, what used to be the Second City Theater in um, Santa Monica. It was at like Mayfair. That beautiful theater. Yeah, that yeah. was six comics in search of a generation specials that they did. Or yeah, no? I, I, and I don't remember exactly. But it was like I was sweating. I wore a yellow shirt, and it was sweaty, and I was sweating. And I walked around the stage, and my girlfriend at the time, because this is like late in the 80s, I see her in the front row, and she's looking at me with horror because she knows that I have lost my spot. <laughs> and it seemed like it went on for about a minute. And here's the reason why I did it. Because when you, and this is another thing I think is a lesson that, uh, I, I really believe in this lesson, but it's very hard to communicate this to comedians because it's counterintuitive to any other art form, most other art forms, especially rock and roll is that it takes time. You need time to develop. I feel like I'm, I took me 20 years to be, I thought I was ready, you know, developed at 12 or 10. It takes time and time and time. And then you have to go through all these things. And, you know, you know there's, there's going to be examples, you know, ex- exceptions, people like Chappelle. There are exceptions. There are people, or Bill Hicks. There are people who are, who are uh, what do you call them when they're, Phenoms or Phenoms, uh, yeah. But that wasn't true with me I could have flashes of stuff So in the early special Like this special that I did I walked around for four hours Doing my act Word for word in my head 
and then for some reason that that didn't work. <laughs> and that's why uh, when when I did all these TV things, I had to go through years and years and years. But Stan Gould just gave the keynote speech today. He was talking about how he wanted to be on Letterman so bad, and when he finally got in the show, he said, I did just fine. <laughs> he was saying like, uh, and that happened to me too when I first went on Letterman. It was like, I don't think I was ready, and even though I, I, I was kind of ready, but you know, I didn't have one of those explosive sets. Yeah, I find that normally most comedians they just want it all yesterday. Yeah, well that's, and just that's all true these of life. New faces that you find on these new faces shows. I got to get the Montreal. I got to get the Montreal. I got to get the Montreal. What do I need to do to make it? What's going to happen? Can I get these spots? Can I get these little things? Can I get this talking heads thing on VH1 behind the music? You know, I just want to say to all of them just go to fucking Montreal and have the best set by a hundred times of anybody else and people will be chasing you like your ass is on fire. You just got to go and do it. If you're not ready to do it, then don't accept the offer. Yeah, right. That's true. I never had one of those sets that was 40 times better than everybody else. Never in your life? You never. No, I've had sets where... No, let's not... Let's not put that story out there <laughs> let's take it away no no i've no tell I've me had... a television appearance that even you after you got off were like this is the greatest set i've ever had in my entire life that happened on the second to last letterman i did and the last letterman i did both of them i was like i mean when you say the greatest set of my life it's like it was the to me like exactly how i would want to do a short set because most of the time, it's so hard not to r- rush, or and it's very hard to be in the moment because it's so quick. Like in a club, you still have that like minute or two where you can get used to the crowd, you know? And this is one of the things like right from the beginning, and that was uh, May of 2014. So I'm very proud of that set. Now tell our audience, like when you do Letterman, just to give you some backstory, when you do Letterman the first time, it's different from when you used to do The Tonight Show. You do The Tonight Show, and Jay Leno would come into your dressing room. How you doing, buddy? Spend 10 minutes with you and your family, talking to you back and forth. You do The Letterman Show, there's no Dave. You don't see Dave unless you run into him by accident. And even when you do, he's curtained off. You're not supposed to talk to him or say anything to him. Then you get your mic on by Biff in the back, and maybe... From about 20 yards away, right before the music's playing, he might turn and wave to you as if to say, have a nice set. You go on and do the set, you kill, he comes over and shakes your hand, says, nice job, and you don't really talk. But after four Lettermans, did you have any little bit of dialogue with Dave you can share with us? Oh, yeah, because what happened was that I did the show in 96 the first time, and then I, was, I wasn't happy with this. I mean, I, I, it was what it was. You know, it was okay. I did fine. I did fine. It's, four years later, I got another spot on this show, and I, one of my lines was, I was here four years ago, I'm here tonight, and I, I, I just want to say I can't live on this kind of money. <laughs> and, and I think he liked that. And then I did a few more appearances, and in uh, January of 2005 was a set except for the last two, that was another one of those breakthrough sets where I had a great time, the audience had a great time. And because of that, he had me start to do field pieces. So I did over like, I think, 30 field pieces because 
uh, Dave Dave used to do the field pieces himself, but then he would get mobbed. He couldn't go out like and anymore. And I just want to say this to anybody listening. Okay, so this is something the exact opposite of how we started, and now we're coming full circle. You do the pieces for the John Stewart show. You do eight or so of them, right? And you don't get the call, and they don't get you back. Why didn't you get the call? In all honesty, let's face it. If those spots were unbelievable and undeniable and fucking holy shit, I can't believe it, you'd still be doing them today. But for some reason they weren't, or maybe you weren't as ready as you thought you were. You do Letterman. You've been waiting four years, and then another set, you wait another four years or so to do it again. Okay? And Letterman, the king. Hundreds of comedians do the Letterman show. And who did he choose to replace himself to do the remote pieces? Andy Kindler. It was. It really is. When you talk about dreams come true, that was a dream come true. And it was all because of him. It was all him. No, it was all because of you showing him that you belonged and you were ready over all those other comedians to do it. Right. I know. I know. I mean, I, it's very hard to. Inside my ego is like, yeah, what Barry's saying is. <laughs> I, in many ways. I'm surprised that everyone in this room isn't fainting. <laughs> but the other part of myself knows that I don't want to get an egomaniacal thing. But no, no. What I more meant was it wasn't like someone on the show other than him wanted me to do it. He wanted me to do it. So that's like couldn't be even more thrilling that he wanted me to do it. And so then I became started to go on the show and I would present the pieces that I filmed. And then, then when the video was, we would roll back the piece that I had shot on the street or whatever and then then we would talk a little bit and we would uh, he was so funny everything he would say to me the side of him that was the curmudgeon side is hilarious that's why uh, to me Letterman was the real deal and it's impossible to watch like Fallon or Leno because to me I love people like Richard Lewis Letterman where they're like real they're in the moment they put themselves down they put the form down and that's what I, so like I would ask him, uh, how you feeling? He goes, I could drop dead at any minute. <laughs> <laughs> and one time I went to the toy fair for his, for his show and I got really hurt. I got thrown off a pogo stick and my back, uh, like almost, it was terrible. They turned, actually turned the piece I was going to do with the toy fair into a documentary about me <laughs> going to the hospital. And, uh, so, and my back was like black from the top of my back to the middle. And I went on Letterman. He kept saying to me, you should sue us. You have to sue us. <laughs> you have to sue us. And a month later, I lost my appendix, which I am convinced was related to the fall, but every doctor says it's impossible. And I said to Letterman, I said, well, I think the appendix was related to the fall, but the doctors say it wasn't. He goes, yeah, right. <laughs> and so I got to see that side of him. And the thing I'm most proud of is after my set last May, I was able to say to him, you know, how much it meant and to thank him for allowing me on the, you know, I said that was my dream come true. And, you can tell he's, it's, you know, it's not like a secret that he's very hard on himself. I, but I think he does kind of realize deep down wh how comics feel about him. Well, that you know? sounds familiar, Andy. Yes. When am I going to uh, let up on myself? When am I going to take the hammer? You, do you think I need the hammer to produce? If you haven't Why am I getting spiritual advice from Barry Katz? <laughs> This is full circle. This guy I used to mock. In fact, I think I had an argument with you. Well, I never had an argument with you, 
But you were we were arguing, I think, about Dane Cook, which is good. You were mad. You were protecting Managed your him for your, seventeen your, years. Uh, yeah. You were protecting your talent. Yes, I was trying. And I said uh, whatever the thing was, and I don't know what you were arguing, but uh, he's one of my favorite. He's like my favorite scene in the movie. And I'm going to go after uh, Seinfeld tomorrow, so you'll see what you think. But in the uh, uh, documentary uh, comedian. Oh, you like that scene? Oh, it's the best. Thanks, and man. when and when George Shapiro says, uh, well, George Shapiro's just trying to watch the basketball game, which might be the greatest <laughs> scene of all time. And when he asks him and he goes, uh, I can't argue with anything <laughs> that, that guy said. <laughs> All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names to you. Yeah. You tell me what comes to your mind. Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. I love Johnny Carson. I remember him. From, to me, Johnny Carson reminds me of like how I would think hanging around with the the image of the Rat Pack was. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like as a little kid, that I just loved. I always loved him. He wasn't my guy. Because Letterman was my guy, but uh, I was so aware of him in the culture, and uh, I love him. Mark Marin. Mark Marin is a uh, soul brother to me. We did a tour together when we both had nothing, right before his podcast took off, and we would argue with each other like two Jews looking for a homeland. <laughs> and uh, I was there at the beginning of his podcast, and I've never seen anybody who works harder on himself and came from like where you would have, many people would have quit. I mean, someone like me or him would never quit because what would we do? So to see him go from, you know, we're feeling all that frustrated. We were both the same, uh, both feeling down on ourselves. I never made the bounce back up. <laughs> uh, Cause the main of my career is one direction. You mean you have never recovered the president? That would, I swear to God, you know how you have jealousy sometimes and you have uh, you feel like, you know, you why that could not be me. That was not it at all. I love Obama. I love him. And I know and, and everyone I've thought that loving Obama would have progressives angry at me. I love him. He's like a hero. It's Letterman and Obama. And he's funny, too. And the fact that Mark interviewed him. I couldn't believe it. It was so great. So I listened to that interview. I listened to the one afterwards where he talks about how it got set up. It's like the greatest thing that ever happened. It's one of the greatest moments in the podcasting profession. I, it was like, I mean, I, I, I have to tell you this funny. Yeah. Quick, I don't know if you'll find it funny or not. So, you know, when you're doing this thing, like I do this in my spare time, this industry standard thing. And I had my 100th episode with a guy who was on your Young Comedian special, Judd Apatow. iTunes calls me. They're wonderful. They, the people come down from uh, San Francisco, wherever they meet with me. They say, we're going to promote this episode. We're going to put a banner ad for it. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so wonderful. Thank you. I'm thinking this is my well, – this is finally the chance for this show and people – that can actually listen and get a bigger audience. They'll be inspired to learn more about these conversations and the business. And I go on iTunes on the Monday morning, oh. and my <laughs> banner ad is to the side, and in the middle is Mark Marin with the president. This is like the greatest moment in podcasting history, and I'm like over to the side. No one will get to see anything. And then I go on that. I listen to the podcast. I'm blown away by it. And I think, oh, well, let me check out one of Mark's earlier episodes. Let me check out the episode right before that. What's that? 
Judd Apatow. <laughs> <laughs> That was his lead-in. <laughs> that was his opener. Crushed so like great. a bug. That's <laughs> so great. Anyway, Ray Romano. Ray Romano is, uh, I mean, I didn't start with him. I, we were on, do- and in many, we, in many ways we couldn't be more different, but he's like a guy who is so hilarious, and I so much respect him. And he's also someone, I mean, it sounds like a cliche to say someone wasn't unaffected by fame or whatever, but he really is no different from the first day I met him. And just a person who, like, I couldn't do the kind of comedy he does because it's, like, very relaxed and it's very, so it's almost like I really appreciate it. And just, like, nothing, nothing but good things to say about him. I love him. Last comic standing. Last comic standing, I owe to my manager, Bruce Smith, who convinced me that I had to do the show I was completely broke 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 brokerman it was after the recession I had no money I had mocked the show forever mocked it mocked it as if I'm above everything mister I'm too good for this show I'll never who would do a show like that cut to I'm on the show it turned out to be the most amazing experience because all the things I didn't want to have, have happened on the show, none of those things ha- happened. There was nothing. There was no background arguments. There was nothing where we disagreed with the producers. Smooth as silk. And I got to be friends with Greg Giraldo. So I'll honor that my whole life. And I thought Craig Robinson was a great host. And don't get me wrong. There's no better judge than Keenan Ivory Wayans. <laughs> When I think of who should judge stand-ups, what name comes to mind? Keenan Ivory Wayans. But I had fun doing it. Until I I found out you were involved. (laughs) I actually lost respect for you when you took that gig, and I was on the show. Do you know why? Why? Not that you care. Because I can't stand when people go their whole career shitting on something and then change their mind and do something after they preached that they hated the show and the what show. What did I just say? He's piling. What is he piling on? And you know something? And then when you did the show, I gained respect for <laughs> it again. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is this is wonderful. And. The fact that you got to hang with Greg Giraldo and be in yeah. that world, that was the greatest thing. And, and so it makes me feel good that it was a really wonderful experience for I, you. I was a, I loved it. Not only that, but the things I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be the Simon Cowell guy. And they didn't make me, no one forced me. And But no, it was, a, in fact, when I went to the, Montreal the year that I took it and I said, look, I can't say anything about me taking this job that you aren't already thinking in your head. So... <laughs> All right, last three questions, yeah. quick questions, and we're out of here. Okay, your proudest moment in show business. Uh, my proudest moment in show business, I think, has to be, I think, get, I just think the uh, the relationship with Letterman. I would say. Awesome. For your sure. Biggest disappointment in show business that you turned around and made great in somewhere in your career you, you took the defeat and then you turned it into something that was bigger for yourself well i don't know that i turned it into bigger for yourself but you know you were talking about like the speech mm-hmm. there was one year the speech was done in a different room 
by the bar. And it was that long room. I don't know if you know that room. It's I was like there video. that day, and you're very upset about I it. Cr- I cried after the speech. I cried after it. <laughs> it. I just felt like... And so I, I thought... I don't know what I thought. And things weren't going that well in general. And I thought that uh, I would never do the speech again. And the fact... I mean, I don't see myself as quitting something anyway. I don't think... But I did feel like I, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore, and then to turn it around and to uh, come down and back again, and that's one of the biggest lessons I think is to let go of your expectations constantly. It's so hard to do. You crushed that next year, and I remember how happy you were. Yeah, that's right. But you saw it was a tough room, right? It was tough because you were even the back. It was like you're watching me on a video monitor. The setup, you know, if you have the wrong setup for anything, it's not going to go as well. It doesn't matter if you're in a sales meeting, a podcast, or a show. You go into a comedy club, and there's a bar inside the room playing the Celtics. Chances are, when Larry Bird scores or somebody else scores, you're not going to do too well. I think they we even had a little bit of that going on. You could see the mall from there. I know. So that was it. Last question. What advice would you have for the young comedian starting out or any person in the business that's that's trying to get to the next level or as it relates to any business in the world to get to the place that you are and have the kind of career and respect that you have in the business? I think you kind of said it at the beginning and I can you know about don't worry about all those external things when you're in Montreal or whatever. I think the biggest thing that people have to get over is all this talk when you start about, well, how can I get, you know, how do I move it along? How do I, all of that's just the fear of doing it. And for, except for very rare exceptions for something like stand up, it is very frightening. You know, I'm not saying it's so frightening you can't do it. And that's, I don't want to create that thing too because people go, people in their mind, they go, oh, I have to have 45 minutes in a week. No, it's like you start with one minute, you start with two minutes. But the less you can, the more you can get off your own back. And give yourself a break, I think is so key. And I think that's why I see so many comics, they worry, what's my persona going to be? What It's like, try not to worry about any of those things. And even try not to get too much advice until you're ready to hear advice, you know. And so I think in general, it's the same thing I'm trying to learn with myself. Is like, the, when I realize I'm on my own back, I get off of it, and then that just allows me you know, like they say, feel the fear and do it. You're going to have fear, but there's no shortcut to the technique. You just have to keep doing it. Andy Kindler, closing strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. For a, for a change. Thank you, Andy. Sorry for the looking at the phone and any of those Did, things. Thank, thank you, Barry. very much. It was, it was unbelievable. Wonderful. I love the thank you so much. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over 
it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.